Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Yining Chang with the New Books Network. With me today is Professor Emma Rothschild, who is the author of An Infinite History, the story of a family in France over three centuries, published in 2021 by Princeton University Press. Before we begin, I want to make sure you know the book is accompanied by a beautiful website that visualizes the places, social networks, geographies, and genealogies that appear in the book. All of that and more, and it's always being added to, and that can be found at www.infinitehistory.org. Emma Rothschild is Jeremy and Jane Knowles Professor of History at Harvard University. She's Director of the Joint Center for History and Economics, a Fellow of Magdalen College, Cambridge, and Professor and Vitae at the Center of History at Sciences Po, Paris. She's involved in collaborative research projects at the University of Cambridge and at Harvard on exchanges of economic, legal, and political ideas and on visualizing historical networks. She's also an affiliated faculty member at the Harvard Law School. Her articles include the following, Economic History and Nationalism, A New Economic History of the American Revolution, and Isolation and Economic Life in 18th Century France. She's author of the 2001 book, Economic Sentiments, Adam Smith, Condorcet and the Enlightenment, the 2011 book, The Inner Life of Empires in 18th Century History, and of course, her latest book, An Infinite History. The book is many things. It's a history of three or 4,000 people. It moves beautifully through 98 stories, and it all begins with a woman called Marie Aymard. I should also say at the outset that this is a history of France, but unfortunately, I do not speak French, so I'm afraid, with apologies, I will be mispronouncing some names and words today. Marie Aymard was an illiterate widow who lived in the provincial town of Angoulême in southwestern France, a place where seemingly nothing ever happened. But in 1764, she made her fleeting mark on the historical record through two documents. The first, a power of attorney in connection with the property of her late husband, a carpenter on the island of Granada, and the second, a prenuptial contract for her daughter, signed by 83 people in Angoulême. Who was Marie Aymard? Who are all these people? And why were they together on a dark afternoon in December 1764? An Infinite History begins with these questions and offers a panoramic look at an extended family over five generations. Through 98 connected stories about inquisitive, sociable individuals, ending with Marie Aymard's great-great-granddaughter in 1906, Emma Rothschild unfurls an innovative modern history of social and family networks, emigration, immobility, the French Revolution, and the transformation of 19th century economic life. Rothschild spins a vast narrative resembling a period novel, one that looks at a large, obscure family of whom almost no private letters survive, whose members traveled to Syria, Mexico, and Tahiti, and whose destinies were profoundly unequal. Members of the family range from a seamstress living in poverty in Paris to her third cousin, the Cardinal of Algiers. Rothschild not only draws on discoveries in local archives, but also uses new technologies, including the visualization of social networks, large-scale searches, and groundbreaking methods of genealogical research. 
An infinite history demonstrates how the ordinary lives of one family over three centuries can constitute a remarkable record of deep social and economic changes. I loved reading this book, and I'm so excited to be joined by today by Emma herself. Hi, Emma. Thank you for being here. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, congratulations on the truly remarkable book. I've just finished reading it, and I've just done the easy job of reading out the publisher's blurb, but it's such a sprawling story. It spans three centuries, five generations, and by the end of it, you know, vast expense of space. Could you start us off by telling us how you think about this book? What's the book about um, and what did you want it to do? Well, let me start even before that by saying that your pronunciation of the French names is just fine. And, <laughs> and while the book starts in a small town in the depth of the French provinces, it does move um, almost literally around the world with the family, but also with their neighbours. And and one of their neighbours, who has a small role in the story, actually had lived earlier in um, what was then called the East Indies, and he was involved in an extremely nefarious slave trading um, voyage to um, uh, to what he described as the Straits of Malacca. So there is a connection to um, to the South China Seas, and we only know about this this nefarious voyage because he sued his partners over cheating him on the insurance in the London Chancery Courts. So, so that gives you a sense of the way I was myself as a, as a writer and as a historian caught up in the story of this place and, and this family. I, I hope that I've succeeded in doing two things. One, writing something that people wanted to read. And I, I was so happy that you said you you read it to the end and 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 enjoyed it as a book. And the other thing I, I wanted to do was to try and tell a large story through a small story or a series of interconnected small stories. There's, there's been a long-standing debate among among historians for at least a generation about about how micro history fits together with macro history and the history of individual lives fits together with the history of great transformations like empire like the rise and fall of slavery or like inequality in over the course of economic change in the 19th century. And, and I, I, I hope what I managed to do is to, in a sense, encourage readers to think about those changes in a new way through thinking about the lives that were led by a particular family and in a particular place, um, and in, in a way in a succession of different places. So that's really the centre of the book, um, plus my own sense of almost intoxication, which I, which I think comes through in the book, with the sources that are available to readers and researchers and scholars 
now as you can as you find not only digitized records of births and marriages and deaths but also old newspapers that are now available online maps um uh pictures of 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 streets that no longer exist i mean it's a wonderful time to be a historian in 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 my view and i hope some of that enthusiasm and that inquisitiveness comes through in the book i'm glad you mentioned that because i felt like that was a big part of my experience of the book to feel like there was a really deep level of immersion in the sources you know it the the sense of you spending years in the municipal archives in this um, little town, little province um, in France comes through really strongly in the book from me. And I wanted to ask you what that was like working with those particular archives. I mean, those are traditional sources of economic history. They're familiar in and of themselves, but was the process of working with them for this distinctive project different from what you might have expected or different from your other projects? Well, there's one enormous difference. I mean, I I spent many happy days or weeks in the Archive Municipal, which is really one smallish reading room um, at at the foot of the hill in the town. And I, I, I feel I formed real friendships with the people who worked there. The archivist of the town said to me one day, "You do know that um, that some of the convent gardens that were confiscated in the French Revolution still exist, hidden away in the centre of the town." I said, "No, I had no idea." He said, "Yes, if you go to the back of the pharmacy on." Um, uh, on what used to be the Place des Muriers, and you go to the very back of the storeroom and you go through a little door that nobody knows about and down a set of stairs, you find yourself in the convent gardens. I, I, I was absolutely thrilled with this. <laughs> and so I said, oh, oh, can't, couldn't you take me? Couldn't you take me? And he said, okay, well, meet me outside the courthouse in two hours' time. And I met him there and we went to the pharmacy and he said to the pharmacist can i have the um can i have the key to the um to to the stairs and we went further it is like the lion the witch and the wardrobe the children's book we went right to the back of the of the shop and down these old stone stairs and found ourselves in a sense in a world that hadn't been visible for 200 years so so in that sense the book it the book is the product of of personal relationships and material relationships to those sources but you know as you as you said in that excessively kind list of all my occupations i am a professor at harvard full time i couldn't spend anything like as much as many months in the archives as i would have liked and tremendous change, and I think this is very, very relevant to tens of thousands of people who are doing research now um, under our contemporary circumstances of so much lockdown. Um, The archives 
a lot of the records of the municipal archives of Angoulême are available online. So when I say, at some point in the book, I say how many days, and I think I say I've been loitering in the archives. By that, I mean loitering online. Um, And, you know, it's not what people are used to in the sense that these aren't records that are searchable. They are just images, I think in most cases derived from microfilms, of the pages, the handwritten pages. You can't search them. They would be very, very difficult to to use for any kind of optical character recognition, but they're there. And what it meant was that um, I could sit in and this is a real example, in a hotel room in the south of Brazil in the middle of the night and read parish records from Angoulême. So so I think that's a a tremendous transformation in in the past 20 years in the the, um, potential for doing this this kind of research Um, and for doing different things with um, records that are as ordinary, in a sense, as the ones that you, you, you find in public archives, because they, they don't only have to be um, used for quantitative social and economic history in the way that um, so many great historians used them in the mid to late 20th century. You can find stories and lives in these records, if you can, if you can, um, you know, use them in these new ways that have become possible. I thought for a long time about where to start with the questions um, for the book proper. Um, and I thought about starting with the title and infinite history, but in this case, I feel like there's um, there's so much work that we need to do first before we can even get to the question of what it means to call this an infinite history. So. Um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you call it work. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, it's very pleasant work, but I feel like there's a lot of like it's <laughs> a lot of unpacking to do um, before we can get to a, like a proper discussion um, of what it means to call it an infinite history. Um, so I'll save that for the for the very end. I feel like maybe we need to start with Marie Aymart herself and with Angoulême and why the whole project begins there and how you personally, you yourself, came to that beginning? Yes, I I first went to Angoulême, to the archives in the 1990s. Actually, it was um, the first archive I ever went to. And I was interested at the time in a sort of large question about economic policy and one of the great statesman philosophers of the time, um, A.R.J. Turgot, who was um, in some ways an even more important economist than Adam Smith in the 18th century and was also uh, a major provincial administrator. And I was writing something um, about him and I I wanted to go, go, go to the archives, even though this was a project really initially in intellectual history. And I just was captivated by the diversity of the materials that were available. And I always wanted to go back. And quite a few years later, I was very interested in um, the, 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 the question of 
what empire and long distance connections meant to people in the interior of European countries. I mean, this was at the time when there was a, a kind of major global turn in um, in thinking about um, history, thinking about the history of ideas. And it, it seemed to me that by um, focusing only on um, global connections, historians were missing something about what um, overseas news meant to people, even in apparently very remote um, um, places with in the center of France or Germany or Italy or, or Britain. And um, I, I, I knew that Angoulême was a town where quite a few people emigrated to, um, to across the Atlantic world and indeed more, more widely. And when I was reading some um, some inventories of the archival records online. And this is another thing that's changed so much with Google Books. You can you can have access to archive catalogues even when you can't have um, um, access to the archives. And in this case, there were very detailed catalogues drawn up in the early years of the 20th century by the archivists. And, and I saw this... Um, interesting sounding petition by a woman who had her, who, who she described herself as illiterate she and she described herself as having heard that her late husband who'd gone as an indentured carpenter to the island of grenada had made a small fortune had been able to bought, buy some slaves and then had died on the way home and the petition was a power of attorney to someone who was going to the Caribbean um, to try and find out what had happened to his fortune. And this seemed to me to be such an intriguing document that I, I went back to the archives and I asked to see it. And when I started reading the details, I was just absolutely fascinated by who she was, why she was... Um, um, using the language she did, and what else I could discover about her. And the next thing I discovered about her was from a few weeks later, which was the prenuptial contract of her daughter, who was getting married to the son of a tailor in the town. And it was a perfectly normal prenup, um, except that when you turned the page over, you saw that 83 different people had signed the contract. And at this point, I just became extremely curious. Who who were these 83 people? Could I find out who any of them were? Um, and why did the family who were, you know, several of them were illiterate, none of them were prominent in any way. Why did they have so many friends who wanted to, who wanted to be there as witnesses? And this was a huge number of witnesses by comparison with other other similar contracts. So I started pursuing these two tracks and I found I found more and more of the people, I found more and more of the of the stories of their lives. And at some point, and I remember I was sitting in Palo Alto in California, I thought, 
well, maybe this is so interesting that this is going to be a book. Um, and that, that, that's, that's how it started. I, um, I didn't know at all how far forward in time I was going to take the story. But once you, one of the ways to find out who the signatories of the marriage contract was, were, was to see what happened to them next. And that meant finding out what happened later in their lives when they themselves married or they, they eventually died. And so, the, so I kept, I sort of was drawn almost without my conscious intention further and further into um, forward in time. And then I found myself in the French Revolution and then it all became so interesting that I, I, I sort of decided to um, tell the story to its end. But, of course, it doesn't exactly have an end. And, and you know, we'll come back to the question of the respect in which it's an infinite history and, and why I did decide to end with the, with the fifth generation. But, you know, I am originally and you know, in, in some sense, fundamentally a historian of economic life. And I, I found the story to be very um, interesting and, I hope, important um, in relation to large questions about the impact of colonial exchanges on the French economy, but also in relation to um, the nature of the famous transition to economic modernity over the course of the 19th century and how it um, how it affected people's lives and how some of the stories about um, industrialization perhaps don't capture the reality of economic change the the way the book kind of accesses those larger questions um, is really is really important to the book and really fascinating um, and I want to come back to that in a minute, but what is it exactly about um, going through these sources and these individuals, these characters in the, the story in this micro-historical fashion that is particularly important to writing economic history? Um, well, I'll give you one very specific example. There's um, been a, a lot of historical writing about the economic impact of the French Revolution. If one tries, as I did, to see those changes from the perspective of a single extended family, one notices um, two things. One was the extent to which marriage patterns changed profoundly and became um, more exogamous in the sense that many more people married strangers, that's to say people who weren't born in, in, in this little town but were there because they were soldiers or because they were traveling um, uh, in the disruption of the revolution or because the sons had themselves gone away as soldiers and married women there or that in one case there was a refugee from the modern Haiti who was in, in the town. So, so the pattern of 
spatial mobility and, in a sense, um, um, openness to other sorts of economic and other contacts st- struck me as a very important um, effect of the French Revolution. The other one had to do with something that has, in the older accounts of the economic effects of the French Revolution, um, was always thought of as um, unequivocally bad, that what namely the revolutionary seizure of religious property um, and to a somewhat lesser extent the property of, of emigres and the consequent redistribution of, of um, urban and rural property in, in the population. Well, that meant that people had less confidence in um, property relations. But at the same time, it was an extraordinary opportunity for um, people who weren't rich, like this family, to buy small amounts of property and um, and to change their lives um, as as a consequence. And I was one, one of the things we have on the website is a map of the religious property in the center of the town, and it's shaded in pink. And you can see from that how ubiquitous was this kind of turbulence in property relationships. Um, and it seemed to me that one of the, in a way, perverse effects of the French Revolution was actually to create a whole new set of of markets in urban property, in um, uh, in um, land evaluations, in repairs and renovations. So, in a sense, you could see this seizure of property as being the um, um, uh, at the origin of, of of some of the expansion of markets in France in the nineteenth century. Um, and and that, that's related to another way in which I started to think differently about um, economic history on the basis of following this particular family. I, I was able to read a lot of tax and mortgage records for the period. And to my astonishment, the only member of the family in the third generation who was rich enough to appear in the tax records as someone with a certain amount of property was an unmarried granddaughter who described herself as having a shop. None of the others were anywhere near to the property threshold. Um, And that unmarried granddaughter um, shows up again a few, few years later taking out an enormous mortgage on the basis of a tiny amount of land that her father had acquired during the French Revolution and investing it in creating a girls' boarding school in the town, which she kept with her five unmarried sisters. And their capital became the basis for um, really most of the prosperity of the 19th century family. So it's a, it's a very different sort of view of how, um, how the economy changed, much more centered in real estate and property um, um, 
uh, and credit relationships, and also much more centered in the economic lives of women, even women whose ostensible occupations were something as sort of unindustrial as keeping a girl's boarding school. Thinking backwards from the 19th century history of the family in this way um, is really interesting because um, there's this, because the, the, the transformations and the changes kind of appears in slightly different perspective. And I was thinking about this um, in terms of the, the, the French Revolution, the 18th, um, 18th century history of the family. There many things to be said about the place of the revolution in this story, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about provinciality. Um, the, the revolution in 1789, um, as you describe it, is uneventful in Angoulême, but it's also really, really present. And I was really struck by one particular description you give of it. You write, quote, there was no possibility of not being seen in the crowded streets of the neighborhood and no possibility of not seeing the revolution. There were new facades, new alignments of streets, and new owners. The noise of daily life was different, and the cavalcade was outside the doors of Marie Aymart's granddaughters. Um, unquote. So for me, the contrast that stood out to me was against Marie Aymart herself um, just two decades ago, um, how little she knew of the outside world. I mean, she was getting this information and misinformation when she inquired into her husband's affairs in Granada, but there is a there is an kind of imbalance in the way um, information moved over um, over long distances for her and for other people. But that seems to be um, very different in the time of the revolution. There is a a, a, a way in which long distance exchanges ha- um, of information had transformed, um, and more broadly, this pointed for me, pointed towards the transformation in the nature of the social space and the political space of France itself. Is this part of why provinciality is crucial to the project? Um, well, yes and yes and no. Uh, 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 one of the many reasons I was fascinated by this particular small town is that it's the um, scene for much of Balzac's great novel, Lost Illusions. And in that novel, he takes this small town as the sort of epitome of um, provincial dullness. Um, he, 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 he says that nothing ever happens. And to become unprovi- unprovincial is to se désengoulémiser. So, so ever since, and he, and he, was, he, he visited Angoulême in the 1830s. Ever since, it's been thought of as a provincial backwater. And and I wanted to question that even for the period um, prior to the revolution. I mean, in some ways, I was actually struck by the extent to which Marie-Emar did have a lot of sources of information about very distant uh, very distant events. I mean, she had been told by somebody in the town, as she put it, that her husband had bought some slaves. She even knew how much um, they made for him each day because he hired them out to work for other people, or, or so she'd been told. She had the name of the merchant to whom he was supposed to have, have 
um, confided his fortune um, when he knew that he was becoming ill and later died. So, so a lot of this information was unreliable, was, you know, rumour. Um, and I, I think it's quite possible that he never did have a fortune. But still, there was a lot of news that she got. One of the things I, I tried to explore in the book is the sort of information that other people in the town were getting, um, for example, in letters from their own cousins who had emigrated um, in many cases to to what was then called Saint-Domingue, the rich French colony that's, that, that became Haiti. So um, even though the technologies of information, as the great historian Robert Danton has said, were almost unrecognizable. There was very little printed news at that time in, in, in this town. Um, it was news that was passed on either orally or in letters. There still was a great deal of information. And there was actually the reason I first went to Angoulême had to do with a, a, a major credit crisis that took place in the town about um, about um, just a few years later in 1769 and 1770 that that became known literally all around France and um, and and uh, and and outside France too. So I don't think um, there was a, a completely radical change in the period of the French Revolution, except in the sense that there was a sudden explosion of print, um, of, of, of print media um, and, and uncontrolled print media, um, and also in the sense that I just mentioned of the mobility of people. There were soldiers arriving, there were people leaving to go into the army, there were um, one of the granddaughters married someone who'd arrived and sought a job as a professor of drawing in the local school. You know, there, you, there, was, there, there was mobility, there was an explosion of print, but it, it, it wasn't an entirely new world of information. And, you know, I, I, I'm so happy that you, um, that you read that particular passage because it was one of the, one of the ones that I thought most about. But the noise that they were seeing outside their windows um, was actually noise being made by their neighbours. Um, and the, the, the people who made the revolution in Angoulême were by and large people who'd been there all along and suddenly turned into completely different people. Um, you know, one of the one of the distant relatives of the family was is a young girl, and she was she was supposed to be very beautiful. She was selected to be the representation of um, republican virtue, and she was sort of dressed up in a white dress and paraded to what had been the cathedral. And she she sort of stood on the on the altar. And um, and represented um, the, the the new age of 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 the republic and obviously uh, you know, desecration of formerly religious um, religious venues and she was just a young girl from from their extended family so so individuals changed 
And um, I think that's one aspect of why the period was so um, 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 disruptive to, to people's inner lives as well as their external lives. I want to talk about um, method for a second, the, the way the book accesses the larger stories um, through the method of contiguity. Um, so the book unfolds from, it begins with Marie Aymard and particularly the marriage contract of, that, that's signed by 83 people. And it moves from one, it moves from there by going from one individual to the next. And it reads kind of like vignettes, but it's not really, um, not exactly. And each piece in the history begins with the story of one person. It identifies a second person to whom the first is connected. And then a third, um, and on and on again, um, bringing the book through the social spaces of these three or 4,000 individuals. It's a, it's a method that you describe as contiguity. You say this is a history of contiguity. And you also describe the method as an experiment. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? that there are different ways of moving from a small story to a large story in, in writing a work of history or even in writing a novel or in the social sciences. And one is to make the argument that the small story is representative of the large story. And that's, of course, a quantitative relationship. You, you have to show that it's, uh, it's representative in one way or another. Um, you, you, another way is to say that it's a case study of something larger. And historians have, have struggled with different ways of putting the micro together with the macro. What I wanted to do, and I, I did this, I tried this, I think, to some extent in my, my, um, the, my previous book, The Inner Life of Empires, um, was to move from the micro to the macro step by step and as as you say by by contiguity and one way of doing this is to um go from the individual to her immediate family um another way is to go um from a, an individual to their social network and that's what i tried to do um by looking at the at the 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 signatories of the of the marriage contract of the daughter and in turn their own social networks. A third way is to um, look at go from the individual to her neighbors and to the people who surround her in a particular place. And the fourth way is to look at what I call contiguity in time and to go from <clears throat> an individual to her children and to her children's children and onwards. And, and it seemed to me particularly important to think about um, generations in the way that they were connected to each other. So grandparents and grandchildren, at least if they you know, lived in the same place at the same time, did seem to me to be connected in in that um, <coughs> um, it's almost a, a, a constant or universal of human nature is that 
grandparents tell grandchildren stories about old times, stories of family history, stories of their youth, maybe in this case, stories of what the, um, you know, what the revolution was like to have lived through. So it seemed to me that there was a, a kind of continuity of family memory between grandparents and grandchildren, and then between those grandchildren and um, uh, and their own grandchildren, and and so that was um, that that was really what I what I meant by contiguity in time. Now I think that the I, I call it an experiment because um, that there were four different kinds of contiguity that I was I was exploring, as, as I've just said. I don't think any of these inquiries would have been possible with the technology of doing historical research of even 30 years ago, because you simply couldn't have access to information about so many um, individuals and so many aspects of the life of a particular place. And, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, um, suggests that history by contiguity is the only answer to the um, micro, meso, macro um, 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 question that's troubled so many scholars. But I do think it's a particularly timely way of, of, of approaching the question precisely because of um, the, the enormous diversity of of source materials um, that, that, that are available. And, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of the, of, the, of the limits ad absurdum of this, um, this approach, because one could say, okay, it's a history by contiguity, so I'll look at everybody living in Angoulême, and then I'll look at everybody living in the surrounding villages, and then I'll look at everybody um, looking living in the next, the, the nearby large towns, and then you've got a map of the world as large as the world. So I'm not, that's not what I'm saying, but um, um, uh, I, uh, it was something that I, I wanted to try to do, and I'm, I'm, it's something I'm still interested in continuing to do. One of the trajectories that that contiguity brings us through is really um, interesting to me. So most of the 98 stories are stories of the obscure and the nearly invisible. There are a couple of anomalies. Um, Leonard Robin, who has a political role to play in the revolution, and Marie-Madeleine Virol, um, who was guillotined for being an enemy of the revolution. But, you know, there are still really minor um, characters in high political history. I think there are a couple of other exceptions. But it's in the penultimate chapter, in chapter 10, that we get someone of historical importance, conventionally understood. So this is the um, Abbe Le Vigere, um, who becomes famous for his work in imperial Christian humanitarian work overseas. Um, it's an industry he basically helps to invent. He becomes Archbishop of Algiers, founds the Society of African Missionaries, becomes internationally famous by the 1870s, and um, becomes remembered for his critique of slavery in Africa. I found it interesting that this was the last substantive chapter before the conclusion. Um, even though the narrative ends not with the Abbey, but with his sister Louise, 
um, who dies at her home in the foothills of the Pyrenees in 1906. She's relatively invisible. Even though it ends there, the the, the chapter is still mostly historious, as I read it, a story characterized by um, a, a sort of mobility um, through empire. And that colors that's what colors the end of the story. Could you talk a little bit about the decision to end the history of the family this way and the difficulty of ending the history um, at all, and ending it this way, not with invisibility, but with hypervisibility, ending it not with immobility, but with a sort of hypermobility? That's a, that, that's a wonderful question. And it's, um, it, it's something I, I thought about an enormous amount. Um, I had absolutely no idea when I um, when I started on the project or started on the book that this world historical figure was a member of the family, and I I only discovered it really by um, a random Google search for their name, and I thought, you know, he's, this can't be a, a relative. I mean, it's, it's just coincidence and so I looked and looked and looked and and of course he was a, um, a, 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 a direct descendant and I, I was I was worried because I thought um, he he this character is going to take over the whole book and I should I should say to um, your, your listeners that um, he was described in his lifetime as one of the most famous people in the world. He was um, very large. Um, In in his youth, he was said to be very beautiful. Um, When he was a famous cardinal, he was really quite um, um, not only tall, but very large. He had a gargantuan appetite. He was was um, treated as almost a saintly figure for his role in... um, in uh, uh, as an opponent of the trans-Saharan slave trade, but he was at the same time an extremely successful entrepreneur of economic development in North Africa on behalf of his many charities. He was also uh, an extraordinary pioneer of what would now be called humanitarian philanthropy and fundraising for humanitarian causes. So he really was an extraordinary figure who was the subject of multiple biographies, but um, um, but who also wrote a lot himself. I mean, in the in the public catalogue of the French National Library, there are many more than a hundred works written by him, and about one and a half written by everyone else in his entire extended family over five generations. So. I, I thought a lot about um, how, how how he would fit in. And I just decided, well, he was a member of the family. He he did participate in um, in multiple family events. He was he was the great nephew of the the, the woman I, I I mentioned who who started the girls' school on the ramparts in Angoulême. He. He, you know, he visited with her on many occasions, as I've been able to find from various public records. And um, and I thought I'll I'll tell his story in the way that I would tell any other story. I, I found it an absolutely fascinating story. He's a very 
complex figure who um who was loved and um and um and really sort of hated by his political opponents and um uh i i thought life is like that different things happen to um members of families and, and you know it, it, i think the you know you mentioned the inequality of destinies it was very very striking i mean i don't think the cardinal was personally wealthy he, all his all his um um wealth was for and to the church and to his causes but he had a, another um distant cousin um did become very wealthy and lived in paris he was actually eventually disgraced um but you know th- th- there he was living a short walk away from from a third cousin who was in um in the greatest destitution so this is this is um part of the drama of economic transformation and i think um i didn't want to not write about cardinal lavigeri because he didn't fit into some pre-existing idea of um of uh, of of the shape of the book but it 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 was important to me to um to end with uh his his sister who was a fascinating character on the basis of her letters and she's the only member of the family whose personal letters survive for the simple reason that um that uh, um they were letters to him and they're saved in his own archive of the of the religious order he founded which is in Rome which is another wonderful archive where i i spent a lot of time with some with some extremely kind and generous archivists um on on many days in the course of writing the book and you know you say that she was invisible um there are many photographs and and oil paintings and indeed sculptures of cardinal lavigeri there's um one caricature of one of his one of his distant cousins who was a waiter in paris there are no images at all of any of the females in the story i have no idea what they looked like although there's a there's a a, a written description of, of of what one of them looked like um the the closest i have to a um a a a, a picture of the of the cardinal sister is a vista from far away of thousands of people at his funeral and the caption reads um in um in a particular part of the crowd was his sister and his nephews and nieces so she's just a blur in a big photograph and and that seemed to me to be you know, part of the sort of inequality of destiny that 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 is such a characteristic of history then then as now the word destiny in the book also um is is also used um in connection with the question of how this book inter- encounters the novel um now when i want to come to this really important really central conversation happening here between historical truth and literary method um 
The book reads a lot like a period novel, um, especially in some places, but it's also not one. And I suspect this says more about me than about the <laughs> the book itself. But reading it, I kept um, the I kept feeling like this history and the storytelling was Mrs. Dalloway meet Middlemarch meet Sadia Hartman meet A Tale of Two Cities. Um, and those are the people I turn to because I've not read Emil Zola, but your referent is Zola and his um, his 19, late 19th century naturalism. So could you talk about the ways in which this book draws from the novel to challenge how we think about truth and narrative um, in historical research? The, the, the nicest thing um, anybody said to me about the book, or rather until what you've said um, this <laughs> Um, this evening um, was one of my oldest friends, um, and um, she she wrote to me to say, um, well, she'd been reading it in the bath every night, one or two stories at a time, and she got to the end and she loved it, and she wanted to ask me the following questions about what the private lives of some of the characters really were, and of course. I mean, I was thrilled that somebody could read it almost as a novel, but it also made very vivid to me what I don't know. If I were a novelist, I would have started with an idea of what the um, um, the, the the character and the and the romantic lives of of these individuals were, um, and then. The, the story would have developed from an idea of a person. In my case, I just don't know. I mean, I could I could discover a, a letter. Um, you know, when I go back to Rome and go back to those archives, I could discover a letter hidden away somewhere, which completely changes my ideas about um, the, the the personal relationships of, of the characters. And that sense to me, um, is conveys something really important about the difference between um, history and, and, and the novel, which is that um, um, everything in this book um, is either true or false. I mean, one of the reasons that I wanted to have such long endnotes and so many references to obscure archives is that I wanted to treat um, the lives of these individuals with as much dignity and respect as historians or, or historian, intellectual historians treat um, the writings of and, and the quota- writings of and quotations from the great um, philosophers or statesmen of the past. I wanted to. Um, show in almost a sort of typographic way that there is uh, there's an infrastructure of of historical truth that um, that is that is part of part of this book that being said I was um, um, I mean I read uh, I I don't think there's been a night for the last 20 or 30 years when I haven't been reading a novel most usually a 19th century novel. And um, um, I I was absolutely fascinated by the way in which the lives of this family, 
who were real intersected with the with the world that particularly Balzac and Zola were describing in 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 France. But I was um, as I as I write in the book, I mean, I was very much influenced by the um, um, by the um, um, the realist novels about Shanghai. Um, I mean, it's uh, um, <coughs> the the historian's method of um, describing lo- many little facts is, in some ways, um, inspired by what great novelists do in describing how the washing is hanging in the backyards um, in Shanghai and the texture of daily life and the food that people eat and the the way that um, realist and naturalist novelists build up a picture of an entire world through the accumulation of facts. That was um, an an, a, a, a real inspiration to me in trying to tell a large story through a sequence of of, 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 of smaller stories. But I couldn't. I don't. I mean, I don't think I could write a um, historical novel or any novel. If I could, probably I would have done. I don't know. You could have. You could have fought me <laughs> with with this one. Um, I, I thought we might um, come towards towards an ending by returning as promised, to the question of the title, um, An Infinite History. Um, As I read it, it's been an infinite history, partially because it's been an intimate history. Um, You use the word disconcerting and uncomfortable a lot um, in the book. You you describe how it's disconcerting, it's uncomfortable to fit the individuals in the story into a history of forces and factors because thinking of them as individuals make them too familiar and it becomes really hard to write a large-scale history. So talk, talk, um, can you talk a little bit more about that infiniteness um, of this history and you know, where that leaves the historian? I'm sorry that I used the word disconcerting so often. <laughs> one, one, of the, one of the difficulties of writing in the digital age is that one can search one's own book and see what what sorts of adjectives occur much too often. Um, I, I think what I wanted to convey by the adjective disconcerting was that um, writing the book challenged many of my own assumptions. And that, I think, is good. I hope it will challenge um, some of the reader's assumptions too. It, I, I found that... Um, the ways in which, as a social scientist, I aggregate um, um, events, small events into large events, or individual human beings into um, into classes, or in the case of you know, economic history, sectors um, or regions, uh, was quite challenged by this process of starting. Um, in a way, from from the ground up, from seeing aggregates from below, and I think that's very positive. And I think it's related to a lot of the of the possibilities that people in other um, kinds of social science are experiencing now. Again, because of the 
multiplicity of source materials and the possibility of um, of, of of actually the possibility of calculation. So um, um, so the the there is a sense in which um, the infinite um, was an allusion to rethinking one's own assumptions, but I think more. Um, more importantly, it was um, an allusion to the fact that I, I genuinely didn't know how the story would end because I, I was so aware of how little I didn't know. I mean, it's, I, I use, um, um, as I said, online um, um, archival material frequently but the um, the um, the universe of what's available online changes continuously. So I can look at the same source this week, and then I look at it next week, and something else is something new is there. I mean, one always has this experience. I think as a reader, you read a book um, um, uh, once, and then you read it again um, a year later, and you see other things in it, or you read a a manuscript and see other things in it, but this is particularly difficult when um, the uh, there are literally new materials being uploaded all the time, and there are puzzles in the book. There are individuals who um, who um, I just couldn't find out anything about, and I still sort of think that um, um, that that I. Uh, I will pursue them or that maybe, you know, some of their descendants will read the book in, I don't know, German or Chinese translation and suddenly um, realise that they actually do have a connection to this this person who's missing in the book. So it's infinite in that sense. I would very much welcome um, others who can solve some of the puzzles I was unable to solve. But I, but I also maybe I'd just say one thing about family history. Um, I thought a lot about the connection between the kind of history of a family in changing times that I was writing and the sort of family history of ancestry and genealogy that's so popular, um, so popular now. And there are many um, complementarities and similarities, and both, you know, to go back to something. You know, we were talking about a moment ago. Both are about truth and falsity, but at the same time, um, I, um, I, I, I really tried to avoid any connection to individuals living in the present. Um, I, one reason I did want to end the book in the early twentieth century was that I wanted to avoid any possibility that um, that people mentioned in the book or that their own children would still be alive now. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think I know the names of some of the living descendants of this family, but I absolutely don't want to um, meet them in the street as, you know, so, so someone in France asked me, what would you say if you met them in the street? I, I would I would run away and I would feel <laughs> I kind of invaded their privacy by, um, by, uh, um, by 
having written so much about their ancestors, even though I did, um, I did uh, calculate that um, for someone living today, it, the Marie Ma with whom the book begins would be one out of 512 grandmothers that they have. So I don't see why I should feel um, anxious about that. We've, we've taken up so much of your time. I've taken up so much of your time and it's been, it's been really great to talk. Um, I just want to ask, uh, you know, really bring this to a close by asking you where this book leaves you. Can you tell us what you're working on next? Something completely different, something with almost no um, individuals in it, um, very few stories, um, but um, I actually have, have written a very long um, article, um, which possibly will turn into a book, about um, revisiting the Industrial Revolution in Britain and France. I mean, it isn't totally unrelated to the book, since um, the, 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 it's called, the article is called Where is Capital?, and it's going to come out in the journal called Capitalism, a journal of history and economics. Um, I, I think, going back to the question of what's disconcerting, I, I was trying to explore in the language of economic history and to some extent actually of economics, which was the, the discipline in which I very briefly started out many years ago, um, some of the puzzles I had about um, um, the, the nature of, of economic change. And also it was, it, the article is about trying to rethink um, the, the place of, of um, the physical environment and energy use in, um, in the economic growth of the late 18th and early 19th century and also the place of the slave-based economy of economies of the European empires. So it's it's something very different. It has two equations in it, and then it has um, um, a few little boxes in the text where I do tell stories, and some of the stories are about marginal figures in an infinite history. So it, 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 it it's connected, but it was nice to do something really different. There's a little bit more more contiguity um, between this between this book and the article. Then um, I really look forward to reading that. Um, and thank you so much for coming on the program today. I've had a really great time talking with you, and I enjoyed the book very much. I'm so pleased, and you're you're, you're a wonderful reader. All your questions were absolutely um, what I would have asked myself. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean that's a that's a testament to the book. I you know I'm really couldn't put it down. I was reading every page. Um, thank you again. You've been listening to a conversation with Professor Emma Rothschild about her book, An Infinite History, The Story of a Family in France Over Three Centuries, Princeton University Press 2021. You can find out more about the book and the website that comes with it by clicking on the bookshop link and the website link in the podcast description. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Yining Chang, and I'll see you soon.